Please open your Bibles with me to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We have a long journey in this book. I'm personally thankful that we're not rushed. Every part is very, very, very important. Yes, the church in Corinth had a host of problems and issues. And as we begin chapter 3 today, we must keep in mind that the Apostle Paul has already identified in chapter 1, 10 through 17, what was probably the most visible and problematic issue. And that was the church's divisiveness and factionalism. In fact, this issue is confronted all the way through chapter 4. And as we've already seen in chapters 1 and 2, Paul goes after a much deeper problem than this divisiveness. Because divisiveness grows out of the misunderstanding of the centrality of the cross in the gospel message. The Corinthian believers had seemingly let the importance of understanding and applying the message of the cross to their own lives in the life of the church. And they let it be superseded by their focus on otherworldly and selfish concerns. This church was really a mess. We have much to learn from these four verses at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Not only is this section a magnifying mirror for us individually, letting us see the ugliness of our sin on the face, we try very hard to present to those around us, but it also makes important distinctions about aspects of spiritual growth that we may have been confused about for years, especially in respect to being a part of the bride of Christ, his church. In other words, these four verses clarify what it means to be a genuine, growing Christian in the body of Christ. And as we dive into this passage, we need to be honest about our desire to know and glorify the Lord. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-4. through 4. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, 
And another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now those of you who heard the last couple of messages through the last half of chapter 1, especially through chapter 2, we had to do a lot of defining about what flesh means and what this means and what that means. We also need to take notice here that this letter was written five years about after he was actually with these people. And we need to keep that in mind. Well, the spiritual maturity, immaturity, demonstrated by the Corinthians' factionalism is what we're getting into here. The spiritual immaturity demonstrated by the Corinthians. In the first part of verse 1, notice that Paul, as he begins to honestly and forthrightly deal with this church's sin, how does he address them? He calls them brothers. He's not going to beat around the bush in his rebuke. But he also does not come out of the gate here calling them degenerate pagans either. He begins with what he believes to be true about them. Because he saw them, many of them, come to Christ when he was with them five years before. He also had just written in chapter 2 that they had the Spirit of God and the mind of Christ. In other words, their lives had obviously not been brought into a growing conformity with the gospel message. That's why he's concerned. But by addressing them as brothers, he's letting them know how he thinks of them. This is confusing already. Don't let it be. Paul is walking through this with both love and in a confounded kind of warning, he's seriously concerned about these people. And then as he continues in verse 1, his readers all of a sudden must realize, his hearers, as they read this, that things had gotten very serious very quickly here as he writes. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, people of the flesh here translates a word that literally means fleshly. And this is not the same word that Paul regularly uses for the flesh in most of his letters, especially Romans. The word Paul uses here is really quite simple. It just means made of flesh or merely human. Why is this striking and surprising for the Corinthians? Because Paul is getting across the point that he could not address them as spiritual people. By which he meant people with the Spirit he would have to write to them as people of the flesh. 
people without the Spirit. See the issue? The tension here is all of a sudden ramped up. It's palpable. He begins by calling them brothers, but then he says he couldn't address them as spiritual people. So which is it? Are they people with the Spirit, which means Christians? Or are they without the Spirit, non-Christians? What's he doing? He's making them, or going to make them, ask that question. The next and last phrase in verse 1 explains what Paul means. What is it? They are infants in Christ. They are Christians and so have the Spirit. He answers that. But in a lot of ways, which Paul is going to lay out, they do not act like Christians. They are spiritually immature. In fact, they are unacceptably spiritually immature. We need an illustration and... There is a good one. In verse 2, we read, I fed you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready. And there are several in our body right now who are going through this stage with a newborn child. And if it's not going through right now, most everybody in here can identify with this. Now, one commentator has a great, but I'll warn you, a graphic illustration. He writes, When my daughter was born, my wife found herself unable to nurse our infant. That gave me the privilege of sharing the midnight feedings. Our little one was a dream. I could zap the formula in the microwave, changer, feeder, the whole eight ounces, and tuck her back into her crib all in under 20 minutes. Then our son came along. Midnight feedings with him were horrendous. Although he had an enormous appetite, He sucked and drank with only three speeds, slow, dead slow, and stop. Worse, he had to be burped every ounce or so, a painfully slow process. Or he would display his remarkable gift for projectile vomiting. Without any warning, he could upchuck what he had taken in and send it 15 feet across the room. If there were an Olympic event and projectile vomiting, he would have taken one of the medals. I never got him back into his crib in under an hour, and an hour and a half was much more common. At least he had an excuse. He was young. And his digestive system was obviously not as well developed as his sister's at the same age. Best of all, he quickly outgrew this stage. 
But there are Christians who are international class projectile vomiters, spiritually speaking, after years and years of life. They simply cannot digest what Paul calls solid food. You must give them milk, for they are not ready for anything more. And if you try to give them anything other than milk, they upchuck and make a mess of everyone and everything around them. At some point, the number of years they have been Christians leads you to expect something like mature behavior from them, but they prove disappointing. They are infants still and display their wretched immaturity even in the way that they complain if you give them more than milk. Not for them, solid knowledge of Scripture. Not for them, mature theological reflection. Not for them, growing and perceptive Christian thought. They want nothing more than another round of choruses and a simple message. Something that won't challenge them to think, to examine their lives, to make choices, and to grow in their knowledge and adoration of the living God. God inspired the Apostle Paul to use this illustration for a reason. Because most of us have some kind of direct contact with the example, do we not? So the Corinthians, then, are what? In this commentator's vocabulary, they are wretchedly immature believers. And their immaturity is something for which they will be held accountable. Unlike the baby boy who could not help his condition. Paul makes this point in verse 3. In our English, the word flesh in verse 3 may look the same as it is in verse 1 because you see the same word, flesh, flesh, but it's not the same word. In verse 3, we read, For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Paul uses a word for flesh here that means something more than merely human. It refers to the moral actions of people who do not know God, unbelievers. He's really saying, you are still living like people of the world, like pagans. Well, does Paul give any evidence to back up what he's saying to the Corinthians? Yes, he does. He gives three specific evidences of living in the fleshly, worldly ways of the people who do not know God. The first, he's already mentioned. Paul says the Corinthians are stuck in the milk stage in verses 1 and 2. This is what we just covered. This is abnormal to stay there for years and years, and there are no excuses for it. He writes, and even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. 
They are not growing in their understanding and application of the Word of God. Especially in understanding what the gospel is and how it applies to day-to-day lives. The second evidence he gives is in verse 3, the second part. The Corinthians are openly displaying jealousy and strife or quarreling. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Now, this is talking about the whole church. Well, what's that mean? The relationships in the church. What relationships? Well, the most obvious would be the closest ones. People to people, friends to friends, husbands and wives. Other family members. And when they're so brazenly displaying such sins and are known for it, they are of the flesh. This is the fruit of not applying the truths of the gospel. In other words, this is worldly living, exactly like the non-believers around them. As if what? As if they did not have the Spirit of God indwelling them. There's a third evidence. They are a deeply divided church. There's factionalism and divisiveness. And Paul writes about this when he says, When one of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? One group boasting because they are following Paul, another group boasting that they are following Apollos, Another one boasting because they're following Peter. Pick your poison here. It's not like Paul, Apollos, and Peter don't have sound doctrine and are being used by God to preach it. These people are the mess. It's almost a picture of each group sitting with just their group. Dressing in a similar fashion, talking the same way, being mostly interested in promoting their own leader and excluding anyone from their own personal fellowship who is not with them. This kind of behavior is again characteristic of mere humans, is it not? Not of men and women who possess the Spirit of the living God. So, now we have a pretty good picture of what Paul means by people of the flesh or worldly Christians. Paul is not referring to someone who has made a profession of faith, carried on in the Christian way for a short while, and then reverted to a lifestyle of completely 
identified with the world where they came from. These folks are obviously not the real thing. Did Jesus give an example of that? Remember his parable of the different soils and the seed, which is the word that was sown? There's only one of those grounds that is a true believer, and that's the last one, the good soil. And we'll mention it a little later. After, So this is not referring to that, that person that is not a believer, that just said they were, they thought it was great, poof, something happens, they just all of a sudden go, no, this isn't for me, and they take off. After all, these Corinthian believers, think about it, are meeting together for worship. We know that because so much of this letter is concerned with their worship. They call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are extraordinarily endowed with spiritual gifts. They are wrestling with theological and ethical issues. And they are in contact with the Apostle Paul, whose ministry actually brought them to Christ. They are not completely sold out to the world, the flesh and the devil. But we can also say that they often act unwisely. Well, what about professing Christians who seem to be slipping so far They seem to be fading from the scene. And time going by is not helping the picture of what their lives are like. Well, Paul actually does have a category for these people. In his second letter, 2 Corinthians, after Paul discovers again that these people, despite having been temporarily restored after this letter, have succumbed again, but this time to false apostles. We read that in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, to a life and to a lifestyle that does not glory in the cross. And that's in 2 Corinthians ten, chapters ten through thirteen. All that's in mainly those three chapters of the second letter. And you know what Paul does? He finally issues an admonition. And that's in chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians, verse 5. Let me read it to you. You can look there yourself. If you don't believe, I'm telling you the truth. Here's what he says. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Does he ignore what's going on? Does he sugarcoat it? Does he say, oh yeah, they believed in Christ, but now they're just living any way they want, but they'll be saved. No, he does not. In other words, if their drift away from the gospel becomes serious enough, Paul is questioning whether they are Christians at all. 
That's the issue. Not what kind of Christian they are, but whether they know God at all. And this, by the way, took place while this congregation was still holding together as professing Christians. In other words, there was a lot of people in this church that were in this category. So how do we draw some conclusions here? And I really hope this helps. But these are not conclusions that you just go check, 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 check. These are things you have to think about and go before the Lord about. The first conclusion is that it should strike us that we cannot just label such a person as a carnal or worldly Christian, one who's made a profession of faith maybe years and years ago, but who for umpteen years has lived without any evidence of Christian faith, life, repentance, values, or interests. And you know what? There really is no such biblical category as a as carnal Christian as most people use it today. Carnal is just another translation, old old translation for the word fleshly. The New Testament over and over again describes genuine believers who exhibit what? How do you know that a fruit tree is a fruit tree? Because it has fruit. And that's the example that Jesus uses. Different in quantity, but fruit the same. And in Jesus' example of the good seed, the, the word of God being sown in different kinds of soil, in, for example, Mark 4, verse 20, The seed on the good soil, the only one of those four that's talking about a true believer, there is fruit. Some 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold. There is no example of a genuine believer where there is no fruit. Professing Christians who display no Christian fruit. Do you hear that? Professing Christians. Whose lives are no different from the world they live in. Are being instructed by Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.5 to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. Do you recognize that or not? And does it have an effect? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So why are they instructed to examine themselves? Because it's very likely that a profession of faith with no resulting fruit or genuine interest in following the Lord. Did you catch that? In following him means that a person made a spurious conversion. Not a phrase we hear much anymore. It means one that is not genuine.
There's a second conclusion. Therefore, those who come to grips with the message of their cross are expected to mature. This maturing process will disclose itself in a growing ability to take in more and more Christian truth, a heartfelt conviction and attitude that avoids quarreling and jealousy and strife. That's got to be one of the most beautiful fruit on the face of the earth. And refuses to embrace factionalism and decisiveness. Paul has said a whole lot here in four verses. Many of us come from a background where we bought into the idea, mainly propagated by... um, a particular ministry that was trying to make things clear, and it actually just kind of confused everything, that there's a Christian, and there's a carnal Christian, but they're saved because they believed at some point. Paul's point is, if you truly believed, then you will have fruit, and it will show at some point. Not decades or years and years of nothing or totally not even being able to tell that that person is a believer. And the cruelest thing that anybody that preaches or teaches can say to you is, don't worry about it. You have a certificate that says on this day or whatever, you did this. And after all that time, There is no fruit in their life. What is that doing? It's giving a false, somebody a false impression that they've got the insurance policy so they don't have to do anything or follow or even consider their relationship with the Lord. What does Paul do? He writes two letters and he addresses them. The first one, around the Lord's Supper, he tells them to examine themselves because it was such a free-for-all and a display of selfishness. But all that was, all of this in this book is meant to let what's truly in people's hearts show. And if it keeps showing certain way with this lack of what we would call spiritual fruits, the spiritual fruits, the fruits of the Spirit, and the other things that Jesus talks about. Not, you know, to care about the Word of God. You should be hungry for it. You should know that if someone dies for you, you can't just walk away if you say you believe them. Jesus said, follow me. And those aren't ways to get salvation, those are the results of real salvation. So the third conclusion is if this maturing process seems extremely slow, the kindest interpretation of this passage, hear me, the kindest 
interpretation of this passage for those professing believers is that they are worldly and acting like mere men instead of Christian men and women who are empowered by the Spirit of God. They could be spiritually immature for a while. But at some point, somebody needs to ask the question or confront the issue. But there's no doubt that even in the kindest interpretation that they really are Christian men and women who are empowered by the Spirit of God. They still are just immature. But they're unacceptably spiritually immature. Serious stuff, huh? But our hearts should break for those, and we should pray and be ones that lift folks up that take this for granted. I fear that there are many in our culture who think they are but probably aren't. I think it's interesting, too, that Paul just lays down the question and, like Christ, the issue of following and what kind of fruit their lives display. In some of those situations, only God knows for sure. Our job, if that's how serious it is, may be to just raise the question. And one of the best ways to raise the question is to let your own life display such love for your Lord and a recognition of your own sin before him being paid for by him with a life of repentance that these people, whoever they may be, when they look at their life and they compare it to your life, they're going, something's wrong here. Yes, they have problems, but they run to the cross. They, you can tell they know they're forgiven, but it breaks their heart when they sin. So they run quickly. Me? I don't care. We better pray. Oh, Lord, we are confronted again in this letter with so much honest dealing with hard issues. And we know that the more individual problems are now ahead of us, almost within reach. And Lord, we know that this foundation that you've given us in the first two chapters especially is so important to keep in mind. So we pray that you would open our eyes and hearts to see that the areas of our own lives which need the gospel application that we profess to realize that 
our sin is so great and so deceitful that only you sending your son, God in the flesh, could actually pay the price of it in our place. The only hope we have, what a great hope, but we can't just stay in neutral if that's where we are. We need to grow um, in our understanding. We need to ask you, call out for you to open our eyes and give us a hunger for you and your word. Our hearts must beat to know you, our creator, our savior. And we pray that you would do that work in us individually and keep doing it as a congregation. And Lord, we know that you indwelling us in the person of your spirit can bring not only light to our own soul and hope in Christ, in a person, not in events or solutions, that that light can also illumine the darkness elsewhere. But we have to let you change us. We have to admit who we are in you. We don't deserve your grace. That's why it's called grace. And yet, you chose us to be your own and adopt us as your own children. You know, Lord, we just pray that you would work so in us that we we want our names to reflect our name in Christ as belonging to him. And remember, that's who we are. Lord, we ask this in Christ's precious name in dependence upon you and thankfulness for your grace and mercy to us in him. We ask that in his name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? I needed a little bit longer one today after this serious subject. They're all serious, but maybe this will help. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You're dismissed.